Good evening. Just making sure I have everybody's attention. How are you? Okay, I still don't have everybody's attention, but those of you who are good, I'm glad you're good. Those of you who didn't answer, I'm sorry. I want to welcome you to the first official chapel, or second official chapel of the winter term. Um, anybody enjoy last night's concert? Okay, outstanding music, wasn't it? Very good, very good. Um, the theme for this year, well, the focus of our chapel service this evening is to remind us of the theme for the year. We're going to use some Christmas carols to do that. We're going to refer to the text uh, that has become the source for our theme. Um, but before we get started, I, I think probably, um, I think probably we just, we need to confess something. Uh, we just need to admit it. It's been this way for a long, long time, and it's about time that we open up to the reality of it. I mean, we're going to have to do it sooner or later. We're going to have to acknowledge it. We're going to have to come clean about it, and so I think probably we ought to do it now. I think it's time that we fess up to the truth. That Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen? Okay, just now that I have your attention. It is the theme of our chapels for this year. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It, it is an interesting word, that word confess. It's really not one that we use very often. And when we do use it, we usually use it in a negative way. Uh, it was kind of fun. I had already done our beginning once today, so I kind of knew how things were going to go, and I could see your faces. Oh, now what do we have to talk about? Now what do we have to own up to? Most of the time when we think of this word confess, we think of having to admit to something, of having to own up to something, of having to, to plead guilty, to come clean, to tell something that maybe we'd rather not know or at least rather have someone else not know. I did a Google search. You know, Google is next to godliness. Well, at least when it comes to research. And I was looking for some images of what this word confess might look like, and the first one is this one. It, it occurred in a number of different ways and a number of different ideas, but it's, this, it's the notion of our needing to tell someone in private the things that we need to get off of our hearts and the need, things that we need to get off of our minds. Confession. The next one is this old movie poster. Now, I'm not old enough to have remembered this movie, even in reruns. But it's, the, it's this line over here on the side. If you knew what he knew, what would you do? Sounds like confess to me. The next image is an abstract creation, someone who said, this is how I see confession. Actually, we need about a half an hour to, to, to consider this one, but we won't take that much time. Then the last one is my favorite theologian, Garfield. Ooh, ooh, blame me, blame me. Confession. When we use the word confess, we usually mean that we're about to admit to something, to acknowledge some misdeed, some wrong that we've committed, but it's not the meaning that Paul has in mind here. 
The Greek word that is translated in our translation, confession, is better translated openly proclaim, or give praise to, or openly acknowledge, to shout it out, to let it be known that Jesus Christ is Lord. The image of the word that Paul has in mind here looks like this one. Open proclamation. No holds barred. Let it be known. It's the same word that Jesus used when he talks to his disciples and those who are listening to him about what it means to follow him. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke, excuse me, to Luke, to Luke 12. To Luke 12, verse 8. He's talking to them about what it means to follow him, and he says in verse 8, I tell you, I tell you, whoever acknowledges me, it's what it says in the NIV, in the New American Standard, it uses the word confess. Whoever confesses me before men, the Son of God, shall confess him also before the angels of God. Openly acknowledge that this person who has confessed me, I'll confess them. The writer of 1 John uses it in chapter 4, verse 15, turn there. 1 John 4, 15. It's the same word. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, again, New American Standard Bible. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Open confession, let it be known. Paul uses it in a couple other places, but I want you to see one more. It's in 1 Timothy 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16, turn there. Again, in the New American Standard Bible, it says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the word, taken up, believed on in the world, excuse me, and taken up into glory. He's saying every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So how? How do we do that? What are the kinds of things that Paul has in mind? Well, it could be that he wants us to say the words, we're pretty good at that. I mean, we put this phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord, on T-shirts and sweatshirts, on bumper stickers and ball caps. Right? Right? Okay, just making sure. All in favor say aye? Okay. Not in favor necessarily of the T-shirts, but just in favor of the notion. We wear it on our wrists, hanging around our necks. Some of us tattoo it on our skin. We put it on our business cards and on our Christmas cards and on our credit cards. We sing it and say it and preach it and pray it. Jesus Christ is Lord. And certainly it's part of what Paul has in mind here because he says every tongue will confess. One day everyone will have to admit it verbally that he's Lord. In our worship of him, we also use symbols to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. This building is a symbol of that acknowledgement. The 12 sides are shaped after the Apostles' Corps to my south. 
The windows and the ceiling were directly, almost directly under the one that's an indication of Jesus. And the 11 disciples who were faithful to him, the building says that Jesus Christ is Lord. And on your way out and back to class, on your way to get a coffee and then back to class, you'll see a poster that says Nazarene Bible College exists to glorify Jesus Christ as, as Lord. The place exists to confess that he's Lord. In our worship setting, we also use some other symbols. We use the symbol of a cross to indicate not only was he crucified, but that he rose again. An empty cross. This cross says that Jesus Christ is Lord. The essence of the word reminds us that Jesus Christ is Lord from Genesis to Revelation. The witness is that he's Lord. And so we use it here as part of our worship to remind us that we have this written record, this written confession of his lordship. We use a cup. A cup to symbolize the cup that he held that night when he said, this is my blood which is shed for you. And often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. The cup declares that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? And the plate, too. The plate held his body, or the, the bread that was symbolic of his body, broken for us. His broken body confesses that he's Lord. And then there's this cloth. There are some traditions that use the cloth to cover the cup to keep the elements set apart until the time that they're used, but that's not what this cloth is for. This is a towel. Remember the time that Jesus used this? Before he shared this meal with them, he took his robe off and he took the towel and wrapped it around him. And then he washed all 12 sets of the disciples' feet. Not just 11, all 12. And then he said to them, an expression that confessed his lordship. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. All of these symbols help us remember that the Jesus we celebrate is Lord. He is Lord. They all have meaning, the way that we say it, the words that we use, the symbols that we use, all have their importance. But there's one more thing I think that Paul is saying to us here in this passage, and so I need you to turn back to Philippians 2. He has something more in mind than just words and symbols. This prophecy of his, this prophecy of Paul's, that one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, implies that since that's going to be the case then, then that probably is a good idea for us to do now. All in favor say aye. Okay, just making sure. But it's in the middle of a conversation, not about the end times and not about salvation, but it's in the middle of a conversation about the Philippian believer's behavior. See, Paul knew that we do what we believe. 
and we believe what we do. The implication of this context is that Paul has in, what Paul has in mind here is as much about what Christians do as it is about what they say. I'll give you a couple of examples. First, chapter, verse 27, Philippians 1, 27. Kind of the setup to this middle section conversation. He says, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, and then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Do you hear the behavior he expects of them? He expects their behavior to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He implies it again at the beginning of the text that we read earlier, verse 5, and I hear it in my King James Version, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude, have the same attitude that Jesus Christ has. Well, the only way I know to know about somebody else's attitude is by their behavior. Then on the other side of the text, beginning in verse 12, it's the other end of the bookend. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, and so on. Behavior words. What's their confession going to consist of? Certainly their words, certainly their symbols, but also certainly their behavior. One commentator put it this way, that we must resemble Christ in his life if we would have the benefit of his death and resurrection. Say it again. We must resemble Christ in his life if we would have the benefit of his death and resurrection. Let me give you an example. Read this in an article just in, in just uh, last week in the newest edition of the Christianity Today. Talking about a book by Rodney Stark called The Rise of Christianity. Stark is a sociologist and he wanted to understand how it was that the early Christians could move from just a movement of a few thousand folks to 30 million people almost half of the population of the Roman Empire. How was that possible? And being the sociologist he was, he wanted to be able to do it in strictly secular terms. And then Stanley, or Crouch says this about it, yet the transformation he documented seems up seeming supernatural almost all the time. One of the chapters is called Epidemics and Networks and Conversion. There's an artist rendering of what the epidemic looked like then. At least two major epidemics claimed one-third of the population of the Roman Empire. Happened in the first centuries of the Christian era. In the face of the terrible conditions that the Romans faced, the pagans and their priests and the elites fled. And you know who stayed? The Christians. 
The only functioning social network left was the church, which provided basic nursing care to Christians and non-Christians alike. Even pagans acknowledged that the early Christians did love their neighbors as if they were members of their own family. Every tongue confess. The church of the first centuries grew dramatically because Christians did what came naturally to the followers of the crucified, resurrected Lord. What changed the pagans' minds was neither political overthrow nor artful persuasion. It was that they knew followers of Jesus personally, and they watched the Christians' response to the disaster. And Crouch ends this discussion by saying, cultural transformation resulted from the Christian community simply being itself. So let me paraphrase. Cultural transformation resulted simply from the Christian community openly proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, next point's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's a question. How are we going to respond to Paul's prophecy? How do we respond to Paul's admonition to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? How are we going to do that? The very notion runs contrary to the culture, always has, always has, always will. One writer warned that we live in a society that's dominated by rights activism, permeated with the philosophy of me first, molded by the corporate ideals of efficiency and success. And Paul admonishes us, he encourages us to say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord, not me, not us, not it, him. There's one other aspect, though, about this confession that I want us to notice. Paul's prophecy is that everyone will confess. Or in other translation, his admonition is that everyone should confess. He wasn't talking to the Philippians about what they had done in the past, about what had brought them to Christ, about the sacrifices that they had made in order to be his followers wasn't talking to them about what they had done. He was talking to them about what they will do. It's not a past tense decision, it's a present tense, ongoing, future-oriented confession. It's not just about what happened some time ago, but it is about what's happening now and what's happening tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that, openly acknowledging with all of our being that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's not asking us about what we've done in the past to confess Jesus is Lord. 
He's asking us, what are we willing to do now? To openly proclaim, to shout it out, to let it be known that Jesus Christ is Lord. To paraphrase St. Francis's paraphrase, confess the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember the day when it first became clear to us that your offer of eternal life, your offer of abundant life, your offer of whole and everlasting life was out of our reach on our own. Oh, we heard the words, and we saw the symbols. But the most convincing witness to us were the lives of those folks who knew that, who incarnated that to be so. Their lives confessed you as Lord. And it intrigued us, and it drew us, and it helped us to come to you. So we want to give you thanks for their confession. And we want to ask for the grace to make our lives that's those same kinds of confessions. By your word in us, by your spirit in us, by your grace in us. May we confess you. We ask it in your name, Lord, believing that what you've asked us to do, you will make possible. And we celebrate the opportunity to do it for your sake, for the sake of the kingdom, and for, certain, for the sake of those who don't know you yet. And we pray it in the name of the Lord. Jesus Christ. Amen. So go in the knowledge and the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Go in his peace. We're dismissed.